Welcome to Measured Justice, where we offer expert perspectives on important criminal justice issues in our communities and in our country. We believe knowledge is the most important tool we have to address the problems confronting the criminal justice system. At Measured Justice, we share expert research and analysis to help bridge the gap between what we know about criminal justice and what we actually do on the ground. We invite the smartest minds to the table to discuss the challenges of crime and punishment in America today. So that everyone walks away better informed. Join us for Measured Justice. This is Ashley Otto, Director of the Academy for Justice at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, and you're listening to Measured Justice. This episode on behavioral jurisprudence will be introduced by my co-host today, Eric Luna, founder of the Academy for Justice and the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law at Arizona State University. Thank you, Ashley. The Academy for Justice is a criminal justice center at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law that aims to connect research with policy reform and to share expert voices. Today on this podcast episode, we're talking about the book, The Behavioral Code, which explores behavioral jurisprudence or the hidden behavioral forces that drive society's reactions and responses to the law. Today, we're fortunate to be joined by its authors, Benjamin Van Roy, Professor of Law and Society and Directory of the Research at the University of Amsterdam, as well as the Director of the Center for Law and Behavior at Amsterdam's Law School at the University of Amsterdam, and a Global Professor of Law at uh, the University of California Irvine School of Law. And Adam Fine, Assistant Professor at the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice here at Arizona State University, and among other things, recipient of a visionary grant from the American Psychological Foundation. You can find their full biographies on academyforjustice.org. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you too for being here with us today. Uh, among other things, your book has been lauded uh, for being the first accessible analysis of behavioral jurisprudence. Could you begin by sharing your inspiration for the book? Uh, what made you decide to tailor your work towards the public at large as opposed to policymakers or those in academia specifically? I think what was our inspiration was really that from different backgrounds, we came to see there was a vast amount of social and behavioral science that could really have an impact in how we do law and justice and could really make it much more effective and much more just, that just wasn't being used. And we saw that the problem wasn't only that people in policy positions may not always be aware of it, but also that the politics and also the general and the general and public opinion that shapes politics wasn't informed by this. And a lot of what people think works actually doesn't work very well. And that's why we set out to write this book. For me, it really started when I was a teacher. So after I graduated from college, I went on to teach inside a school that National Geographic did a special on called Inside America's Toughest High School. Inside this school, we were disciplining kids through fear, through deterrence. And I moved from that school to a middle school where it was one of the top charter schools in the city. Yet again, there was still so much of a focus on disciplining, on trying to encourage positive behavior as well, through fear, through deterrence. I then went to graduate school where I did my work in social ecology as well as psychology and social behavior, where I started to learn more theories, more explanations, understanding what really drives human behavior. I shifted from that to criminology and criminal justice. 
seeing what the prevailing theories in these major disciplines say actually does impact behavior. But so much of this is hidden behind these disciplinary silos or these paywalls and they're steeped in jargon. So I jumped at the opportunity to work together with Benjamin to bring together what people are saying across these different disciplines and try to translate it for more of a general public who we think would benefit from this information. Terrific intro. Let's let's do a little bit of a deeper dive into this notion of behavioral jurisprudence. Uh, Professor Van Roy, could you explain this the concept that, that you 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 both describe as the behavioral code and how it can be used to shape policy, particularly in the field of criminal law? And as you know, as an example, what should policymakers be looking to in questions that have typically been assigned to punishment and sentencing, and instead be look at the overt incentives that may be modifying behavior and how to improve ultimate outcomes? Yeah. So let's start first with really briefly saying what behavioral jurisprudence is all about. So just like behavioral economics provided a behavioral evolution in the field of economics, questioning some of the basic tenets of traditional economic thinking, what we're arguing is that the field of law also needs behavioral revolution. And the behavioral revolution in law is a little bit different. Law needs to look more clearly at, at one particular question, which is what can we expect legal rules to actually do in changing human conduct. One of the functions of law is to deal with what is seen as negative conduct. A conduct. For instance, a good example is violent crime. But all too often when in law we're discussing what legal rules there should be, we sort of have assumptions of what good legal rules are. So most lawyers would say a good legal rule, uh, for instance, on criminal punishment should be clear, should be very uh, well articulated and should have good incentives. Once you follow the behavioral science and you look at actually how these legal rules get to shape behavior, you see, you see a rather different picture. So a good example that we discuss in detail in the book is that just having stricter punishment, which most lawyers would argue, well, if the punishment is stricter, it's gonna be higher cost, so there will be less of the behavior that you want that is being punished. But the science shows that there's actually no conclusive evidence for this. And it shows that we need to look at how we punish and how we organize it, but also that we need to look beyond punishments. And that's the core argument we make in the book is to show if A, we need to focus on the question of what law actually does and how it influences behavior. B, we then need to look at the science because we can't just um, assume that there are certain effects that certain legal rules we have. These are all very complex causal relationships for which you need statistics and, and, and uh, empirical data. Uh, let me follow, that's terrific. And as kind of a little bit of a segue to Professor Fine, your book touches upon, um, as uh, Benjamin just mentioned, the, the some of the incentive structures that exist, to think, thinking about the way in which we can use these various levers to be thinking, to, to be thinking about punishment and uh, criminal justice. But it also speaks to sort of invisible factors, I believe you guys described it as, and um, that we often overlook. And that much of this is occurring unconsciously uh, and that people will tailor the behavior around these unconscious um, uh, issues, whether it's social norms or, or something else. How does, how does this create challenges for policymakers? How do we perhaps uh, affect those, um, those incentive structures or instead to uh, allow people to see that the incentive structures in fact exist? This is a challenging question. 
And one of the fun things with in writing this book is Benjamin and I tried to rely as much as possible on other people's work. So we had the, the joy and the pleasure of reading hundreds of articles in order to come up with these general schemes or understandings of how different forces are influencing behavior. So you mentioned, for instance, social norms. One of the things we did was dig really deeply into the social norm literature to see how folks have actually leveraged these, what you called invisible forces to actually influence human behavior. And one of them actually takes place here in Arizona, right? Not too far from where both of us work in the law school and the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice. So there's something called the Petrified Forest, the National Park in Arizona, where you have 200 million year old pieces of fossilized wood, and they had a huge problem with theft. Pieces were being stolen day after day, year after year that are irreplaceable. And so the park authorities tried different approaches, intuitive approaches to try to reduce the theft, nothing was really working. It wasn't until they actually started working with a social scientist called Bob Gialdini that they could actually reduce this theft. And what they did was actually just change signs. They changed what was actually posted on the signs, not just instead of 500 or however many dollars, they actually changed the number of thieves on the signs and triggered a social norm inside people's minds to think that it's not just everybody doing it, it's actually these lone wolves, these sole actors who are stealing. They change the social norm by changing the signaling to the people. So I think one of the biggest challenges for policymakers is to really take a step back and to dig deeply into what's actually happening on the ground that's promoting this behavior. What are the social norms? Not only what are the social norms, but what are the other invisible forces that actually influence behavior too, right? So what are, for instance, the situational parts? What do people need? in order to actually engage in that behavior? And how can we use policy to remove those mechanisms, to remove those steps in the process? So it's thinking really differently about crime and this behavior. Instead of just focusing on getting the incentives right in terms of how tough is the punishment, trying to use these classic theories of deterrent for which there's limited evidence that they're actually that effective, or the evidence really is just inconclusive, instead to think more deeply about these social forces, the psychological forces that really drive our behavior too. And one thing to add to that is that if we combine sort of the view on deterrence with social norms, what, what Adam just discussed, so that example of Bob Cialdini's work can also be applied in law enforcement policy. So what happens if you, for instance, communicate about a successful law enforcement campaign? For instance, maybe a state has a campaign against uh, DUI, and it reports how many people were caught driving under influence and how many people were, were punished. That's very good to do that from a deterrence perspective. And our book shows that you need to show people what the chances are of being caught. And most people don't know this. At the same time, by saying that a lot of people are, are caught breaking the rule, you're also saying that a lot of people are breaking the rule. And Cialdini's work shows that in that way, you might also trigger a social norm and you might actually also be normalizing rule breaking. And that's sort of the hidden forces. Reading our book, I think policymakers become better attuned to understanding, okay, what are the different things that I'm activating and deactivating and how can I better combine these? This terrific discussion, let me extend it just a little bit further. You, you both are, I'm sure, aware of the broken windows theory that um, was promulgated several decades ago. Uh, Wilson and Kelling began it, and it informed, among other things, uh, the type of policing that was engaged in in New York City and elsewhere. And it certainly was based on an, a kind of understanding of behavior that, uh, using the title, that if you allow uh, broken windows to go untended, 
you allow other signs of disorder, that it sows kind of a, uh, not incentive structure, but a, a, a willingness to engage in that behavior across society. And certainly it lowers any type of social barrier that might exist to not committing that behavior. The problem, some would say, is that in implementing that theory, it led to some pretty problematic policing behaviors uh, in the ensuing years. How can you take what you describe in your book so so eloquently and and with with such uh, uh, with such support? Um, how can you avoid the type of don't have to call it an abuse, but let's just say a, a disformation of what was intended and uh, resulting in a policy that is in fact exactly what you were hoping not to achieve. So what's interesting about broken windows theory is first of all, if you look at the actual evidence of the theory at where it was developed in the US and applied in the US, there's actually no evidence that it really worked. The only evidence we have is an article in Science of a study, an experimental study, field study in the Netherlands of people littering on the street and things like that. And there's a small theft element there. So, so that's the first part. If you followed our book, you wouldn't implement a policy for which there's no evidence. Second is, if there's one big element in the book, and Adam can say much more about that, is if you have, let's say there was evidence that this works. Okay, that's one part. So it may, let's say it might work. That, let's say there's evidence that stricter policing would work. There's also evidence that fair policing is really vital. And if you have unfair policing, you're, you're uh, undermining the very legitimacy in society that you need to get a law-abiding society, that you need to get people to follow rules and reduce crime. And this is more a field that Adam is really the specialist in. Let me, let me add this before, Adam, you jump in and, and both of you can, can chime in. What uh, Benjamin just talked about brings this notion of procedural justice, that there is some value in, in the process and according it. I'm wondering, it, it, along with Professor Van Roy's uh, critique of broken windows as uh, ab initio to begin with, but also, of course, its implementation. I'm wondering whether that doesn't also kind of call for a moral theory that is not necessarily evidentiary based. Right? The notion that there are there are guardrails that, to some extent, we don't care what the evidence we want the evidence, but if the evidence were to point in a particular direction that was totally averse to our history and our moral thinking, yeah. little m moral, um, that we would nonetheless not uh, adopt that policy, even if it seemed like a, a, a utilitarian uh, uh, good move. So let me be clear about one thing about our book and, and behavioral jurisprudence. Behavioral jurisprudence is not replacing any normative and moral theory. So the first question in law is to find out what's right and wrong to find out what do you actually want to achieve, which is part of political process, part of legal interpretation, part of basic fundamental rights, etc. Once you've figured it out, you want to get it done. That's what our book is about. But getting it done, you still need to be aware of what then the, the, the sort of neg the, the negative costs can be for those moral theories and, and rights. So compared, for instance, to some of the early law and economics, which tried to sort of replace everything, our theory is not replacing everything. It's just there as an added question that's just forgotten. So the first thing you want to figure out is what is justice? Once you figure that out, you want to find out, okay, how do you effectuate that? So we write that also in the book. If you figure out justice without how to effectuate that, you will not get justice. If you figure out how to get an, an effect without justice, you get tyranny. 
So you don't want to de-link one from the other. And that's the core argument we're making. We're not claiming bigger moral, that you can derive moral points from what we're saying. But we do think that if you don't bring in the facts of what, what the effects are of a certain rule, it is rather difficult also to figure out morally which rule you want or don't want. So there's a linkage there that's really intricate. We do spend some time in the book talking quite a bit, actually, about procedural justice and legitimacy. We believe that people deserve to be treated fairly and justly by those that we choose to arm, by those that we choose and equip to actually enforce the law. We believe that should just be a right. There are many in the literature who are also arguing that procedural justice and legitimacy are linked to law-related behaviors. Things like the more legitimate you see police, the less likely you are to engage in crime, but also the more likely you are to cooperate in investigations, to assist police, and so on. And there is an increasing body of evidence there too. So one of the mechanisms that we discuss at length is really how do you promote that legitimacy? Why should you become more procedurally just? Beyond just the fact that we all should have that right to be treated fairly and justly, but also for law enforcement to understand the implications for law-related behavior. For us, law enforcement should recognize, right, that the more that people find you procedurally just and the more they find you legitimate, the easier your job will actually be to enforce the law. But there's a bigger story here too. The more legitimate we see legal authorities and legal entities, the more trust and faith we actually have in the system itself. So this is one of those invisible forces that can become quite visible very, very quickly. Professor Fine, so you're you're talking about this this concept of legitimacy, and I'm curious just your stand your um, input on how that's impacted the criminal justice reform movement overall. You know, aside from passing laws or conducting investigations, how might you know changing organizational culture and social norms play into this legitimacy and overall the, the the criminal justice reform movement? This is a really tough topic because the work is still very much ongoing. There are a number of researchers across the country who are working with different agencies to try to implement procedural justice trainings. And the evidence is currently pretty mixed. Some of the procedural justice trainings have short-term effects. Some of them have mixed effects. The literature is really, it's, it's really sparse right now, but it's growing and there's a lot of attention on it right now. One of the issues I think is that when it comes to understanding procedural justice and understanding legitimacy, a lot of people actually equate procedural justice with just having a good interaction with a law enforcement officer. And that's really not what it is. It's not just having a positive interaction or seeing a law enforcement officer or somebody in the, in the, the legal system actually helping somebody. No, it's really about how the entire agency is treating people that they interact with even during arrests, even during these, these sorts of situations. So it's not just in non-enforcement, it has to be within enforcement. In fact, that's the primary place that this literature was, was born from, understanding how law enforcement are interacting with civilians in enforcement-related experiences. I think our book can also be used to understand the problem of police violence in countries like the US. So once you analyze it, what, what we see often is if something really bad happens, we want to hold the officers accountable, which, of course, is a problem. There's a lot of impunity. And, of course, research, um, even though there's not a lot of impunity research, uh, but if, if there's no punishment for uh, illegal actions, at some point you're undermining the norm that exists. 
But a deeper dive into this, at some point, this is not just about the individual officers. It's very much about um, larger organizational culture and social norms. So we have a chapter in the book, which is more about corporations, but could be applied also to police departments. We don't write explicitly about this, but it could be, which in the end really talks about, okay, what is a negative organizational culture? And what are elements of that? For instance, some of the elements we find probably might also apply to police departments like having unrealistic targets you have to meet, uh, a culture of silence where you're afraid to speak out, a normalization of deviance. If you go through some of those elements, you might also see, okay, what are the sorts of maybe secondary things that we're not thinking about, like lowering targets for police, um, making it safe to talk with colleagues about things that might indirectly really help to reduce some of the um, uh, the abuses that have been going on in some of the departments. That's great, thank you. Uh, Professor Van Roy, I'd like to maybe connect this just a bit to the, the law and the books and perhaps how common it is for the public not to be aware of both the law itself or even of their own rights. Um, how does this create challenges for policymakers and the public and in what ways can more informal processes such as social norms encourage lawful or moral behavior? Yeah, this I, I I mean I teach a course on law and behavior to first year undergraduates in law school in Amsterdam. So I got a thousand students, and this is sort of the big bombshell in the course. If you're trained as a lawyer, you sort of learn to sort of program human behavior through rules that you write. And what ends up happening, and it also happens in organizations, is that we get more and more and more rules. And if you sort of look at the evidence that's also in the book of whether people know rules, most people don't know most rules. Even the most basic rights, like their, their rights at work, uh, like some of the basic Fifth Amendment rights that we all see on TV, most people still don't know, basic family law rights, and even specialists like doctors or school administrators don't know the law that applies to them. So once you let that sink in, you see sort of that the causal relationship between writing a certain rule and getting a behavioral effect just isn't fully there. And what we see in research is that what people think the law is often comes out of what they assume the law should be. So the sort of moral views or social views determine what they think the law should be. We just did a study in a large tech company where we had um, where we had employees fill out sort of a questionnaire, an exam on the anti-bribery and corruption rules. Um, and we had three groups. One group received no training of the rules. One received a sort of full um, overview of all the rules in legal language in 30 pages. One received a one pager in legal language and one received a one pager in infographics. And we assumed that the short of one pager in infographics would do best. What we found, there was no difference between the groups. And we found that if we looked at variation in how well people scored on the exam, it was largely determined by their social norms about the issue of corruption. In other words, it really de determines what you think the rules are, even if you just studied them, it's still determined very much by what you are thinking that the rules should be or what most people hold them to be. So those, I think, for anybody in legal education, anybody in law, are just major, major things to let sink in. And sort of the policy issues for, for me out of that is, A, let's have fewer rules. Let's have simpler rules. B, let's be aware if rules are going against social norms or, or morals because then we know they're not going to come across so we know there's a larger 
work to be done to actually get people to know and understand them and see, and this is maybe frustrating, lower expectations. Uh, there's only so much we can do. And we've created a massive amount of dead law that nobody knows, nobody understands, that's not driving anything on a daily basis and only is activated once we have disputes. Once that happens, sure, we can find a lawyer and they do some legal research. But if law, as we in our behavioral jurisprudence point of view, want to sort of to guide us in our everyday lives, it needs to be understood, it needs to be out there. And that I think is a, is a, is a major different way of thinking compared to traditional legal thinking. Let, let me connect this with a, a couple of other concepts because this is turning to a very fascinating uh, conversation. Um, we, there are a variety of, 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 of concepts or, or topics we, that have been touched upon. Legitimacy, obviously, the legitimacy of the law and the system. Compliance, the extent to which uh, a population will actually follow those rules. Knowledge, right? the notion whether somebody knows what the rules are. Um, let's imagine that there's some aspect of all that going on um, and, and give you a kind of historic example, but it has real world application. Legal historian uh, Lawrence Friedman, American um, uh, legal historian, described um, a certain type of a social agreement that existed, a sort of social norm. He called it the Victorian Compromise. And it was the idea that there would be uh, an understanding that certain behaviors would be done, maybe even widely, but they'd be done behind, behind closed doors. And they wouldn't directly conflict with whatever the norm or the law was on the books. And society recognized this. This was not a matter of compartmentalized knowledge. It was well understood. And that it provided some kind of, he didn't take that theory and provided any normative gloss to it being good or bad, but it is a kind of recognition of how we have behaved for many decades in the drug war with regards to other things that are called vice. Prostitution is another example. What was, what do you, what do your, um, your study, your, uh, and your book, what would it have to say about these kinds of issues that are extraordinarily nuanced and um, clear answers are not evident to everyone? So, if we look from a historical perspective, law has taken on way and way and way more sort of big social problems and behavioral challenges over the last century than it did ever before. So in the past, it was about contract, it was about basic forms of violent crime, and it was about tort and property, sort of these big things and maybe some administrative law. So first of all, law was much closer to most people's social norms. B, there wasn't that much law, it was less complex. So if you look at the late 19th century, with the sort of development of the regulatory state, with the publication of the jungle, where we get sort of uh, the requirements at work where we want to protect people, environmental law, you mentioned vice law. So there's much more that we in a risk society don't accept anymore, that we want regulated. So one way that somebody could read our book morally is, is and we don't make that argument, and I wouldn't make that argument, is maybe let's go back to the 19th century and let law just not do that much because it's impossible to do all of that. It's much easier to do that. And I know some of the more conservative lawyers out there would, would applaud that. For me, I'm not there. Me, I really believe that law is keeping us safe from environmental harms, from also more complex financial types of, of, of things that have just happened that are just not encased in social norms as easily. And I think as a society, once we make a political decision, and of course we can go back to that, that's back to that moral argument, that we want these things, you do want to achieve them. What is important is to realize how hard it can become to do that. And I think prohibition, the war on drugs are very good examples where this completely backfired and didn't work. So I think 
once you go further away from where society is and you're trying to change things that that had been accepted and that were, let's say, behind closed doors, the harder it will be to get any of the behavioral code to work on most of these things that we describe in the book, it will be harder. Uh, people won't accept the rules. You won't be able to see the behavior. Uh, the legitimacy for the new rules may be lower, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I think in that sense, um, it, it, it once there is this idea of, 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 of trying to go beyond what is the existing behavior in society, that's where, where, where changing behavior through law gets really, really difficult. Fantastic. And let me, let me get Adam into this to give kind of a, a point to this in, in an example. Your book mentions um, Operation Peacemaker Fellowship in uh, Richmond, California. Um, it has this $1,000 monthly stipend for good behavior uh, to help uh, reduce gun violence. And the first question is, does it work? What are, you, what are your thoughts on it? Do programs like these or other kind of contingency management programs, do they lead to more positive social outcomes? And let's assume that, and if they do, which, uh, um, how do we get the public to agree, uh, agree with these programs? Because it seems implicit within it is this sense of paying people for bad behavior, paying for people to do what they people usually just don't get paid for. Please go ahead. So these are, there's a, there's a body of evidence suggesting that these types of contingency management systems are sort of on the rise across different areas of life. The one that you're talking about is really specific to violent crime um, out in California, and they've tried that in a couple of different places around the country. They've been actually pretty remarkably effective. So there's uh, multiple studies have suggested that these contingency management systems can actually be pretty effective. So the one that you're referring to is out in California. It's really focused on violent crime, but there's also other ones too, right? So for instance, California, is going to be trying this uh, in, in combination working with uh, or from the lead of the US Department of Veterans Affairs. They're trying to work with Medicare and Medicaid authorities for permission to use about $60 million to reward patients to stay off of meth and cocaine, right? So it's not just in violent crime, it's also in drug crime. These types of contingency management systems and, and approaches are really interesting because they're sort of posing a fundamentally different type of question than we traditionally do when we try to deal with misbehavior. Rather than try to figure out, well, what are the punishment? How much should we punish somebody for another violent crime? Or how much should we punish someone for testing dirty again if they're on probation? Instead, it's trying to recognize, what do you actually need to move forward? It's recognizing, trying to understand what why are people engaging in these misbehaviors? Why are you engaging in violent crime? Why are you selling drugs? Why are you using drugs? What are your other opportunities? What are your other possibilities in life? So these are trying to really think about the person holistically, try to think of, well, what, is, what do you actually need? What can we do to support you to live a law-abiding life? This is a hard pill to swallow for many people, right? It is politically divisive in a lot of circles too because many people see it as I'm paying you to do something that I don't do anyway, right? You're using my tax dollars, you're using Medicare, Medicaid dollars, you're using these dollars from this source that I contribute to. And in my approach, my personal approach would be, we'll take a step back. Do you want that behavior to be happening in your community? Do you wanna stop that behavior? Rather than focus on your gut response, on retribution, on only punishment, why not take a step back and try to think about, well, what actually works? What reduces misbehavior? What scientific evidence can we collect on this approach moving forward to see if it's actually more effective than the treatment 
as usual, which is typically just punishment itself. For those who aren't convinced by that argument, then we move to, well, is this actually more cost-effective? Is it more cost-effective to give somebody $1,000 than it is to lock them up for three to five years for that misbehavior moving forward? And Professor Van Roy, turning to you a bit, I want to uh, connect this to the concept of self-control or, or lack thereof and, and deviance. You know, self-control is malleable. An example, the service dog training programs for prisoners or the reasoning for reasoning and rehabilitation cognitive therapy for prisoners. Can you talk just a bit about the rehabilitative aspect of the criminal justice systems and alternatives to deterrence? Yeah. So for me, this was one of the surprising things in reading the science. And it's, it's also written like that in the book. What I saw there was a, a large body of work many studies of real people who've gone through real punishment and real prison with real control groups and, and experimental groups. So the experimental group would be going into treatment, the other one wouldn't. And then finding across the board again and again and again that many of these different treatments for many different crimes, including quite severe violent crimes, actually work. And so I think the evidence across the board that we reviewed, and we reviewed reviews of this, so this is also important, our methodology wasn't just to cherry pick studies. Now we would find bodies of work that have been reviewed using review methodology. That means that you systematically, you can't exclude studies just as you see fit. If, if I mean, looking at the at body of work together, yes, surprisingly, it works. And it does come with sort of an uncomfortable feeling that animals who just described. It's sort of, well, but shouldn't people just getting what they deserve? And that is where we talk about getting smart on crime. So I sort of, the politics are politics of talking tough on crime or calling somebody weak on crime. And we really believe that in the end, most citizens in the US would agree on one thing. You don't wanna become a victim of crime. And for us, that's sort of the starting point in a political debate is okay, if we don't wanna become the next victim of crime, if we don't want our kids, our family members, colleagues and friends to become victims of crime, we then need to go to, okay, what actually works best? And then if you look at the evidence, this body of work shows at least that all these kinds of therapies are part of a toolbox of things that work really, really well. Um, and I think that's an important conversation to have because I see that in political conversations, often the people that are trying to, to, to support these policies are not doing a good job selling them. They're often put away as weak on crime. And I think, look, it's just being smart on crime or dumb on crime. That's, that's the basic question. We want things that work and that are just. I think we can all agree that the juvenile justice system is critically important, right? Or that working with justice-involved kids early on to prevent them from entering a, a life or career of crime is critically important. Yet sometimes when we talk about the therapies, the treatments that kids can receive in juvenile justice systems, people raise an eyebrow and are wondering, well, what is the cost? Why are we doing that? Shouldn't we just hold them accountable? They need more than just a slap on the wrist and some treatment and some therapy. They need to be held accountable. They need to be held right to top standards. But when you take a look at the systematic reviews of the evidence, there are tons, dozens and dozens of studies that come out on things like multi-systemic therapy and functional family therapy on reducing youth crime and violence. Both have been proven effective when done well, 
when done with fidelity. For instance, we have randomized controlled trials for both types of therapies. Finding, for instance, uh, functional family therapy can reduce delinquency by about 50, 51%. Multisystemic therapy can reduce violent crime, violent delinquency among justice-involved youth by about 15 to 20%. These types of approaches aren't just focused on punishing the kid. They're not just focused on retribution. They're focused on multifaceted approaches, thinking about the home environment, the friend environment, school environment, thinking about the context that the kid's embedded, thinking about the kid themselves as well. And these evidence-based interventions are really effective and they're actually cost-effective too. They cost us less than it costs to do treatment as usual. I think that's critically, critically important for the public to know. This is great. Let, let me add in a couple of kind of uh, continuous problems and see what your, your thoughts are, because you, you do discuss or touch upon them um, uh, in your book. One, um, behaviors of individuals that are, um, uh, they are opposed, they're irrational, right? They, um, addictive behavior, for example, the inability to uh, be able to chart one's course because of certain decisions that um, are are uh, usually sh uh, clouded by the substance that they might be consuming or whatever happens to be the object of, of their addictive behavior. And then on the other side, um, talk about um, opportunities that people might have and how that changes uh, behavior, how different levels of housing and employment and education in particular might affect someone's um, uh, not only their their the, the vistas of their life, but also might reduce crime in general. I, I know that uh, I think it's mentioned that one year increase in average schooling reduces murder and assault by thirty percent, motor vehicle theft by twenty percent, arson by thirteen percent, burglary larceny by six percent. How? Why aren't the this case? Why isn't this made more explicitly to the public, or is it made and it's just not being listened to? And how would you uh, take that information that seems seemingly very important information? and make sure that public policy is consistent with it. Let's start with the last point. So yes, a smart on crime approach, it doesn't just wait for people to get into crime. No, it starts with making sure people actually have the right socioeconomic conditions so they never go into crime or can desist much earlier. So yes, housing, education, and income are clear, clearly linked. So Adam and I wrote an op-ed in the LA Times last year when the news came out that once again, uh, there was an uptick in murder rates, in homicide rates in major US citizens, major US uh, cities, including LA. And it was quite interesting. So we make this argument, like we've been talking about now, look, we need to look beyond punishment. We need to look at the broader sort of spectrum. And we included also just exact statistics that you just read out. And we also called for smart on crime. When we then looked at the comments that we got, it was sort of telling the amount of visceral racism, the amount of sort of hatred, not so much for the solution, but for the, sorry, sorry, for um, the, the hatred of investing in people with less opportunities. It sort of, I mean, it, it shouldn't have shocked me, but it did shock me. It shows me at least that trying to have a sort of rational conversation about a problem that I would assume most people agree on. I don't think there's many people who say we want more, we want more violent crime. I think most people want less homicide. But then people saying automatically, but we don't want this solution because that solution, well, it gives it to people who don't deserve. 
that to me is where we need also going into the midterms, maybe the elections after that, a serious conversation. If, if American citizens want to talk about crime, look, there is really good ways to deal with it, but you need to be able to go to the, uh, to the facts. And anybody saying that, look, I don't want to look at these facts is actually selling people more crime. So I think the bigger political story here is really important. The science is, is, is on this part really quite clear. It's about building a narrative out of it. And for me, the narrative is we all want less crime. Let's follow the evidence on how to get there. And anybody saying that, oh, let's lock more people up, up and that's going to make us safe, that's not following the evidence, no, no matter how much they like it. I think there's also an intellectually lazy approach here, too, where a lot of people think about it as an either or. Either you hold them accountable or you help them lead a law-abiding life in the future. Either you hold them accountable or, right, and it really should be a hold them accountable plus help to prevent it in the future. Professor Fine, how might readers of your book apply the behavioral code in their own lives and on an everyday practical level in school, office, um, parenting to kind of correct these more minor everyday misbehaviors? And, and how does you know, but things like better schooling, uh, more targeted policing for minor offenses impact overall crime rate and societal well-being? I love this question. So when it comes to everyday misbehavior or trying to apply this to your own lives, we try to make it really, really simple and really clear. First of all, we start from a place of anytime there's a misbehavior in your own life, typically everybody shifts to punishment. If you're a parent, if you're a teacher, if you're in the uh, CEO, if you are a teacher in a law class, right? You shift to punishment. Well, the punishment isn't strict enough, it isn't harsh enough, or I'm not doling it out consistently enough. You work and focus almost exclusively on the punishment. But punishment is just one mechanism for influencing behavior. And in fact, this punitive intuition that we all have, Benjamin and I call the punishment delusion. We try to snap people out of this punishment delusion and try to say, either in addition to or in place of punishment, what are the other mechanisms and the forces that drive human behavior? And so what we do is we actually provide six different steps in the last chapter of the book to try to work you through, if you're dealing with any type of misbehavior, what are the types of questions that you should ask? These are things like, well, how does the unwanted behavior work? What are the necessary elements? What questions should you ask? What should you pay attention to to understand that? Because sometimes you don't even need punishment if you can just remove the opportunity to misbehave. For instance, I don't know if you've ever been in a car recently and haven't put your seatbelt on, but the warning signal for you plugging your seatbelt in for buckling up will chime you into submission. So that's one opportunity, thinking about how did the, the misbehavior work. And then we have five other steps to help you work through how, what should you do to address crime or everyday misbehavior? What are the tools that you should have in your toolkit? So let me, one last question while we still have a bit of time. Uh, what do you hope the takeaway will be from your book? And what are the next stages in your research and trying to uh, help uh, both the public and policymakers um, uh, make better laws and better, and better policies? So I hope that the big takeaway is twofold. One is that law has a really important role to play in dealing with negative behavior. Law is not just a theater, a theater in front of a judge of dispute resolution. The law is also there every day trying to keep us safe. 
So that's takeaway one. Second is, once we recognize that important function, then understanding how law does that is the beginning of how, how to make law better at doing that. And that is going back to what just Adam said, learning to think through multiple mechanisms. And that's the behavioral code through the six questions. For me, the next steps are as follows. First of all, I'm doing a large research project now on how people in the legal system that are enforcing legal rules, such as prosecutors, compliance managers, uh, uh, regulatory enforcement agents, and also some police, what are their, their ideas about how law can change behavior? And to what extent do they have intuitions that are different from the ones that we have in science? And we're doing a, a similar study amongst general population, also amongst law students. And all of this in order to show sort of, okay, where's the gap between what we know in science and actually what people themselves are thinking? So that's one part that I'm working on. The other larger part that I'm working on is on organizational culture. So a lot of the behavior that we're dealing with happens in organizations, whether it's police departments, governmental organizations, uh, or corporations, or universities. Uh, and a lot of what happens there is related to cultural elements in organizations. So we're doing a large project where we're trying to understand what exactly are these cultural elements and how can we diagnose them much earlier before they set in and become too difficult to change. So those are these my next steps. I know Adam has a whole range of steps he's, he's involved in. To me, it's trying to translate this more for the public as well. We know many ways to change misbehavior that doesn't rely exclusively on punishment. So I'm trying to transform this knowledge, this information from these different disciplines into real world action. Primarily, I work with law enforcement agencies, specifically police uh, departments, as well as juvenile justice systems. And we're trying to actually implement some of this in, in our work together. I'm really thrilled that I'm working together with the Maricopa County Juvenile Probation Department. For instance, they run the detention facility there. And what we're doing together is we've co-launched an internship program for ASU undergraduate students to go work with kids experiencing detention to help to raise their, their education levels, to help supplement the education that they're receiving within the detention facility. We're working with teachers, working with staff there. It's a really wonderful opportunity for us to try to actually be part of the positive changes and to be part of these solutions of recognizing that giving people more opportunity, that empowering them and being a support can actually reduce delinquency and give them a new lease on life. This is uh, this has really been an exciting episode, guys, in, in laying out um, not only your basic, basic thesis, but also helping us think about how it applies and what the, the future may hold. We're at the end of our time today. Um, we want to thank our guests for a really terrific discussion. Benjamin Van Roy, Professor of Law and Society and Director of Research at the University of Amsterdam, as well as the Director of the Center for Law and Behavior at Amsterdam Law School, also at the University of Amsterdam, and a Global Professor of Law at the University of California Irvine School of Law. And to our colleague Adam Fine, Assistant Professor at the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice here at Arizona State University. Thanks also to my co-host and our uh, producer, Amina Ketchen Kamel. This product is a service of the Academy for Justice at Arizona State University Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. I'm Eric Luna, and this has been Measured Justice. <laughs>